seated. Please be seated and turn to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. It's good to see everybody. Almost everybody's here, it seems like. We might have to get a new building here pretty quick. We keep running out of room here. Now, we, we still have some room, but Dan Zeiss is very optimistic that that won't be the case here pretty soon. So, And who knows, right? I mean, we just need to keep being faithful and, and see what God does. But I was thinking, we are, uh, we, we've been meeting for about three years now. Not quite three years. In, in totality. So that's not that long. I mean, it seems like forever in the sense of, you know, just... But at the same time, uh, even Kristen, we're talking out there, and it's amazing because they were here, they've been here more than, a, longer than a year. And I mean, it's just amazing because it's fast, but it's slow. So it's timing and all that's weird. Uh, anyway, so Mark chapter 12 is where we are as we continue going through the gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, yeah. Mark chapter 12. And we are dealing today with, I had everything ready, um, 13 through 17. No, that's not right. Just let's turn to Mark chapter 12. Sorry, my notes. See, I, I lost the binding in my book, so I can't just flip it open. So everything, like page one, there's no page one anymore. It's all the same thing. So that's why I'm kind of dealing with some things regarding this notebook. And uh, a little awkward. All right, so Mark chapter 12. I know we're dealing with the passage regarding the most famous, most popular passage, most quoted scripture in the New Testament, chapter 12, 28, chapter 12, verse 28, chapter 12, verse 28. Let's read this. One of the scribes came and heard them arguing and recognizing that he had answered them well, asked them, that is last week's sermon. <laughs> All right. But you know what's great is that the Lord humbles you. The Lord keeps you humble. You know, that's great because it's like you can't just... Look, if if you go in thinking you got it all put together, the Lord's like, really? We're gonna we're gonna smack that down. All right, chapter twelve, verse thirty-five. All right, this is the one for sure. And Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the Son of God? Excuse me, the Son of David. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, and this is the most quoted verse. In the New Testament, when the New Testament quotes from the Old Testament, this is, is quoted 35 times in the New Testament, David himself said in the Holy Spirit, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? And the large crowd enjoyed listening to him. Now that part, that last phrase is very important because as we move on here, one of the problems that the people that are dealing with Jesus, especially the high priest, the chief, the Sadducees, the Pharisees. The problem is, is that everyone is buying into what Christ is doing. So he has the, the support of the populace. And so that is causing a lot of problems for the people who are in charge here. And so that part right there tells us why it is that they continue to pester him and they go after him trying to, trying to undermine what he's teaching and trying to expose certain inconsistencies in his doctrine. But as we see him go on, we see that it's, it becomes worse and worse for them the, the harder they try to do that. And the same thing happens today. Okay, So Jesus now, but here's the, here's the interesting thing about today's passage. We've seen Jesus have to be on the defense of a lot. They come up and they want to challenge him with questions and they want to ask him certain things, remember? So, you know, um, 
who you know where are you from what do you, who gave you the authority to do these things we saw last week you know what's what's the uh, he says what's the greatest commandment what's the what commandment is the foremost of all so they're the ones asking questions but you notice today who the one asking the question is so Jesus is turning the table and now he's going on the offensive and he said okay you guys have been questioning me all this time I got a question for you how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David now what's Obviously, what he's obviously not saying is that he's not the son of David, right? So as you look at this, in other words, as you look at this, you're saying, okay, wait a minute. Is he denying that he's the son of David? Because he says, how is it that the scribes say that the Christ is the son of David? He's almost refuting that notion. David himself said in the Holy Spirit, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your foot. David himself calls him Lord, so in what sense is he his son? It's almost like he's saying, is he really David's son? You guys tell me, not you, you know, but that's what he's saying. You guys tell me, is, is the Christ really David's son? And of course he is. And Christ is definitely not going to deny that. But what he's doing here is he's saying, yes, okay, on the one hand, yes, he is David's son, but he's more than just David's son. Okay? He's more than just a human deliverer. He's more than that. He's transcendent. He's, he's beyond that. And as we'll see, um, this is also, this section right here in the psalm, so he's quoting here from Psalm 110. Okay, Psalm 110, as I mentioned, 35 times in the New Testament is quoted. But here's the other thing about Psalm 110. It's a kingly psalm. It's about Christ being the king. He's the anointed one. Yes, he's the Messiah, but he's also king. He's the ruler. West, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 26. How does Christ execute the office of a king? I mean, this is so, this is so glorious and marvelous for Christians because... Remember when Christ comes into Jerusalem on a donkey, and we looked at that, and we, we, we read, what he's doing, he's establishing the fact that the Messiah has set up shop, that he's coming into his kingdom already 2,000 years ago. Now, that has not been fully completed yet, but he started this kingly work 2,000 years ago. And so the comfort that we have in this, this is how they answer, how does Christ execute the office of a king? In subduing us to himself, so he subdues his people, us, to himself, he rules and defends us. He rules us and defends us. That's the glorious thing of having the God of the universe as our king. And he restrains and conquers all of his and all of our enemies. Why is this important? Well, you know why this is important, right? If you take this and the practical ramifications of this in every single day life, okay? Sometimes we, and, and look, it's easy to forget that Christ is king. It's easy to forget that in our own personal lives. Okay, and I'm not, I'm not just talking about like, you know, culture wars and those things. That's important to realize Christ is king. Christ is king over the nations. Christ is king over the cultures. Christ is king over every institution. Christ is king over every square inch. He owns it all. So that's important to remember. But bring it in a little and look at our own personal lives and recognize, and this is, this is where it gets difficult to, to remember this, but think about the numerous obstacles that we have every single day in our lives. Every single day we have numerous obstacles, right? You wake up in your day, and now obviously you can dwell on that and you can be fixated on that, that's not, but that's the whole thing, right? As you approach life, as you wake up in a world that has fallen, a world that is under a curse, you recognize in our own lives we have problems, we have 
opposition. We have obstacles. We have persecution. We have people trying to indoctrinate our children into falsehood. We have people uh, finances. There's difficulties with finances. There's sickness everywhere. There's an epidemic across the country with anxiety, depression, uh, marriage. You know, marriage has certain difficulties, obstacles that come with it lack of sleep, you know, children, you have new children, you have you have children who aren't so new, they're they're adults, but they're still getting in. I mean, we know how it goes, right? Every single one of us, there's numerous obstacles every single day in our life. And that is when we need a healthy dose of Christ is king. Christ is the the king of the universe. He's on his throne today. And that's why this is so important. And that's why, you know, this is it's, it's almost like this. This is a it's a warning to Christ's opponents. Okay, that's what he's going to do here. So it's a warning to his opponents. And that's who Christ is dealing with a lot of the time when he's on earth, right? People coming up, challenging him, trying to force his hand, trying to say things to get him into trouble. He's dealing with his enemies and his opponents. And he's saying, he's declaring that one of the things that when Christ declares himself to be king, it means that all things are going to be put to right. Remember we have in the Bible, vengeance is God's, saith the Lord. Vengeance is His, it's not ours, it's God's, right? So we trust in God to bring vengeance upon our enemies. We don't try to take it into our hands, we leave it to God. That's why you have the imprecatory psalms. The imprecatory psalm, break His teeth, O Lord. And you read that, you're like, are we allowed to say that? You know, Yes, if you're giving it to God. I'm not allowed to go and break my opponent's teeth. But I'm going to leave it to God's perfect justice, his perfect righteousness, and say, God, you see the opposition. You see my enemies. Break their teeth, oh God. Right? It's in the sense of saying, okay, I'm not going to take this into my own hands. I'm going to bring it to God. If God wants to deal with that now in time, that's his prerogative. If he wants to wait until the judgment to come, that's his prerogative also. That's up to him. But I'm going to entrust him with this. I'm not going to take it into my own hands. Okay? But that's the beauty of knowing that Christ is king over, again, he subdues all of, he restrains and conquers all of his and our enemies. Okay? But here's the other thing, right? Even in our own life, Think about the, 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 I mean, I mentioned the outward external opposition and difficulties. What about the sins in our life? What about pride? What about bitterness? What about lust? What about gossip? What about immaturity? Right? So there's all these things. These things too, notice, knowing that Christ is king, it's an antidote. It's a way to, to help us with this. And also, I was reading, when I was putting all this together, this was, uh, I don't know, a couple months ago, but... I had heard that week that somebody said this is this talking about 2024 is going to be the most explosive season in American culture since the Great Depression. Now, who knows, right? I mean, we never know. I mean, yes, sometimes it's funny, like in Y2K, they predicted that, they said that, and then nothing happened. So, but sometimes they don't say anything about it, and then it is like the most explosive, it's the most, it's the most uh, explosive season in, you know, like 2020, you're like, where did that come from? So sometimes, maybe it is, maybe it's not. But the point is, is regardless of whether or not it is, Christ is king. Christ is ruling. Christ is on his throne. Christ is in charge over everything in the universe, whether or not it even sees, seems like that. And that's the point. Because so often it doesn't seem like that, right? It doesn't seem like that in our own lives. It doesn't seem like that in culture. It doesn't seem like that in the world. But he is. And that's his point here. All right, so let's look at this. Verse 35. Now look what he says, okay? Jesus began to say, as he taught in the temple, very common thing, 
How is it that the scribes say that Christ is the son of David? Now, who's the Christ? The Christ is the anointed one. Um, you know, when it comes to the Messiah, the Messiah being from David's line, the reason we know that Christ is not denying this is because we interpret Scripture with Scripture. Okay, Christ himself has received people calling him the son of David. Remember, as he's going into Jerusalem, the guy outside, the man, the Bartimaeus, the blind dude, he's outside of Jericho, is calling to Christ, son of David, have mercy on me. Christ doesn't say, hey, man, I'm not, no, 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 I'm not the son of David. No, he goes and actually attends to that man. So we know that, but also in other places, in the letters of Paul alone, Romans, 2 Timothy, also Revelation, so that's John, but in all of these, including Matthew, Luke, all of these places, all of these scriptures, all of these letters show that Christ does come from the line or the throne or the seat of David. All right, so he is, there's no doubt about that. But what he's doing here is he's correcting a misunderstanding. The misunderstanding is that when the Christ comes, when the Messiah comes, he is going to be a human deliverer. Christ is saying yes, but he's more than that. You see that? So that's the problem that he's dealing with. That's, that's the misunderstanding, the wrong assumption that people are dealing with. He's more than just a human deliverer. That's why he brings this up. That's why. Now, and we see this today. If you stop right here, right? Okay, because here's the thing. There's nothing really challenging. There's nothing really offensive about saying that Christ was a really good human being. Right? I mean, he was top shelf. He was one of... I mean, when you're talking about the most influential human beings on the face of the earth, nobody has a problem. Atheists don't have a problem with saying, you know what, i got to give it to Jesus. That man, that Jesus of Nazareth, we don't know who he is, you know, we don't know, I mean, I know he's, he, his followers say a lot of weird things, but we got to give it to that guy. Like, he, he was an influential figure, just like Plato was, just like Aristotle was, just like the Caesars were. Just like Napoleon. I mean, he's right up there with all those guys. And that that's, there's nothing offensive about that. Right? Because they're like, yeah, he's a, I mean, nobody can deny that. He's like the Buddha. I mean, right? These guys are very influential. New, you know, in fact, if you go through a list, okay, New Age people will adopt Jesus for their religion. Islam adopts Jesus, no problem. Yeah, we'll adopt Jesus into our religion as one of our guys, our gurus. The secularists, they don't have a problem with doing that. You know, when they, they say, well, Jesus was a socialist. Jesus was this. Jesus was that. They have no problem saying, well, Jesus, Jesus was a liberal. Jesus, you know, so they have no problem. The deist, Thomas Jefferson, I mean, he had no problem with Jesus. He even had a Bible, right? Thomas Jefferson was like, man, look at this. Jesus is a great teacher. The Sermon on the Mount, man, that would get better than the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the miracles you chop out and get rid of, right? But as far as Jesus being a man of extraordinary human achievement and accomplishments and wisdom, I mean, he is he's top shelf. No problem with that. That's the misunderstanding that Jesus is trying to stomp out. Okay? Yes, he is from the seed of David. The he's a descendant of David, yes. But, as you see, He's saying that he is more than that. David said, now look at verse 36, David said, in the Holy Spirit. Why is that important? See that little phrase, in the Holy Spirit? That's important. Is it not? It's like this, in Galatians 3.8, don't turn there, but in Galatians 3.8 it says this. Think, now, now I'm going to say, I'm going to read this slowly. Now think about how strange this is. Okay? The scripture, 
foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. Think how strange that is. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham. The scripture preached the gospel to Abraham? Really? Who preached the gospel to Abraham? God preached the gospel to Abraham. So what is he doing here? He's saying that this is inspired. This comes from God. There's no contradiction between saying God's word and the scriptures, in other words. That's what he's doing here. He's pointing out. He's reminding them, okay? David himself said, in the Holy Spirit, inspired utterance, moved by God, God breathed. What, I'm, what Christ is about to declare, he's saying, this is God breathed. And what is it? What's he going to say? He says this, the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. You see that? That's why this is a kingly psalm. It's about the king's enemies being put beneath his feet. Now, here's what's very cool. In the first century, the time of Christ, when he quotes this, everyone in his day was quoting this, was seeing this psalm as messianic. This is about the Messiah. There's no question. There was no debate whatsoever. But after the first century, now check this out. The gospel starts to spread. This, as I mentioned, is used 35 times in the New Testament. And so what the Jewish rabbis did is they changed the interpretation of this so that they began to interpret this as not about the Messiah. It's no longer a messianic psalm. Why? Because they're trying to undercut this proof text for Jesus being the Messiah. They're trying to undercut that. So they have to change the interpretation. But eventually, strangely enough, like in the 4th, 5th century, whenever it slowed down a little bit, they went back to that original interpretation saying this is about the Messiah. So they're still anticipating a Messiah to come, of course. But, you know, that's kind of, a, it's, it's just cool because you see that this is the way not only the church in the early church was interpreting this, but it had such an influence and such prominence among people that they had to change the interpretation of it because they knew it was such a powerful proof about Jesus' deity, that he was the Messiah. Okay, now here's the thing, okay? This is a, con now if you were to turn to Psalm 110, this is where everything's coming from. If you were to turn to Psalm 110 and you were to see what's going on here, this is a conversation between Yahweh and Adonai. All right, these are two different names, Yahweh and Adonai. And there's some, again, there's some history here, and I think it's cool, so I'll say it. Sometimes it's, you get in the weeds, but I don't think this is one of those times. Pre-586, 586 is when the southern kingdom fell to Babylon. Babylon comes in, wipes them out, okay? Pre, this is 586 B.C. This, this right here, this psalm, was, was considered to be a dialogue between God and the king, like David, Solomon, those guys, okay? So, so human kings, okay? So a conversation between Yahweh and David, or Yahweh and Solomon, or, or Yahweh and Hezekiah, whoever the king is, okay? So that's what this conversation is about. In the pre-586... Post-586, after the sack of Jerusalem, after the exiles are carried off to Babylon, after everything looks bleak and despair, and guess what? There's no more king on the throne, by the way, right? So how, who's this conversation? What's going on in Psalm 110 if there's no king anymore? Well, the way they began to interpret this is now they recognize this is, this is a conversation between God and not a earthly king, but between God and the Messiah. God and the Messiah. And it is. That's the whole point, right? The Messiah, God, Yahweh and the Messiah are having a conversation here. And that's what this Psalm 110 is about. But here's what Christ is saying here, okay? When Christ says that he is 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he his son? What is he saying? He's not his son. This Lord that David is referring to is not David's son. He is his son, but he transcends David. So how can we call him David's son? He transcends that. Now, if you're ever talking or if you're wondering, because every now and then it comes up, you know, how do we know that Jesus Christ is God? Now, we all know that. We all know that that's doctrinal. We all know that you're a heretic if you don't believe that and everything else. But how often do we just stop and say, okay, but where is this coming from? Why are we saying that Jesus is God? Okay, so let's take some opportunity here to do just this, okay? And I'm going to go to a few places. These are really good to write down if you're ever talking to a Jehovah's Witness or a, who else, a Muslim, anybody who denies the deity of Christ as far as what the scriptures teach, okay? So let's turn to Isaiah chapter 45. I'm going to, I'm going to give you a few examples here. Isaiah 45, 22 and 23, okay? Isaiah was written 700 years before Jesus Christ came to earth. But you have this verse in Isaiah 45, 22 and 23. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Who's he talking about here? It's very clear. It's a reference to God. God is saying there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance, every tongue will confess, right? We've heard this before, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Where do we see this? Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, Paul makes it very clear, and we won't do this for all of them, but I, I am going to go to Philippians 2 here, just so you can kind of see the back and forth. So what Paul is doing here when he quotes Philippians 2, and, and in some translations, or, or certain, um, yeah, so some translations, you'll have it even, even marked out in your translation. You know, well, they'll do like the block quotes or whatever. So here it is. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him, Jesus, the name which is above every name, so that, the, so that at the name of Jesus... A name implies something, you know. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess or proclaim that Jesus Christ is Lord. Is Lord, okay? To the glory of God the Father. Now that's one place you're like, yeah, but maybe that was like an aber uh, uh, like a aberration there. Maybe that, you know, maybe they just like goofed or something. They happened to land on that. Same thing happens though in Ephesians chapter 4. If you want to go there, Ephesians 4. This is my favorite one. I just got a Jehovah's Witness on this the other day, man. I mean, they, and they don't know what to do. What they do is they're like, all right, well... That's nice talking to you, but uh, let's. Uh, why don't you go on, and we're just going to keep going with our... It's like, wait a minute, man. Okay, Ephesians 4. Now, what you do, though, is you go to... you First, you take them to Psalm 68. Psalm 68, you read through there. Very clearly, it's very clearly about Jehovah God, Yahweh. Just have them read that. You have them read that, and you say, okay, who's that about? Jehovah, Yahweh. They'll say it every time. Of course, it's about Jehovah, about Yahweh. You read Psalm 68. Okay, now you're like, okay, well, let's go to Ephesians 4. Ephesians 4, verse 8, let's start in verse 7. But to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, the scriptures say, therefore it says, when he ascended on high, this is the part directly lifted from Psalm 68. 
It is lifted directly from Psalm 68. When he, Jehovah, in Psalm 68, he's talking about Jehovah. When Jehovah ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And then you can say, well, who's it? All right, Psalm 68 is clearly Jehovah. Ephesians chapter 4, clearly Jehovah. It's talking about Jesus, so that means Jesus is who? Jehovah. And that's where they're like, no, 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 you, <laughs> you got to go. So you got to, you got to kind of, you don't want to just come right out and just drop it on them like this. You got to kind of not, not trick them, but you know, there's a sense in which there's some tact here as you go about this. And of course the Holy Spirit, here's another one, Isaiah 42, or here's a way to look at this. Okay. Isaiah 42 verse eight, I will not give my glory to another. And we just saw earlier, I will not there's only one God. There's no other. When God says, I will not give my glory to another, and then Jesus Christ says, go and baptize in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Unless Christ is God, that is God giving glory to another person. Even in the triune baptismal formula that we use. All right, so y'all see that? So it's not just, well, Christ did miracles or that Christ forgave people of their sins. Remember even the Pharisees said, well, who can forgive sins but God? And these are true things too. It's not just Thomas where Thomas falls at his feet and says, he worships Christ and says, the Lord of me and the God of me, or my Lord and my God. Remember that? It's not just those places. Those places are really good too. But just know, I mean, this is a full encompassing, all encompassing orbit here whenever we say that the Bible teaches that Christ is God. You can't get around it. You might have an issue with that. You might have a problem with that, but your problem is with the scriptures because that's clearly what the scriptures teach. There's no other way around it. There's just not. All right, so that's why when Christ gets on the scene here and he's talking about this, this is just, that was a little segue to just demonstrate there's no question in the mind of Christ who he is. And we've seen that already. We've seen him demonstrate that he is God already. He's, we remember even the, uh, the waves of the sea whenever they're hushed and they're still and they're saying, man, who is this guy? Only God can do things like this. And Christ is very intentionally making that that known to these guys. So, so here we are, and that's why he's bringing this out. Okay, the fact that Christ is not just anybody; he's not just a human deliverer. He's not just another Moses. He's a greater Moses. He's not just another David or another Adam or another you know whoever another Samson, whoever the deliverers were. That's not who. Now, what's and I, I just love this idea. That is, you know, this is the. I mean, this is who they were expecting. This is why you can't fathom the shock and the awe and how overwhelming it would be to be in the shoes of anybody in the first century and even in our shoes today. If you really take stock and ask yourself, okay, this is beyond human comprehension. That God did not just send a human deliverer, which he had done time and time and time again in the past. He didn't just send a human deliverer. They were expecting a human deliverer. Today, the Jewish people are expecting a human deliverer. That's what they're expecting. They're still anticipating that. But when Christ comes, he blows that to shreds because he's saying, look, God is not just going to send a human deliverer. God himself is going to come and deliver. You see that? It's not just a human anymore. Why? Because the things that people need to be delivered from are more than Moses or David or Abraham or even a, just a human can possibly do. A human being cannot deliver people from, from sin and from death and from the demonic and from, from unbelief in general and, and, and rebellion, spiritual rebellion. A human deliverer can't do that. God has to do this. And so when Christ comes on the scene, this is exactly his point when he's talking about God is going to make his 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit on my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. David himself calls him Lord. So in what sense is he a son? And look, you notice how there's no answer to this? That's the point. There's no answer to this because as they're listening, now they're enjoying it, but think about how mind-boggling this would be. That this man in front of you, this is the scandal, this is the offense, is it not? That this man who's in front of you does not look like any kind of extraordinary human being. That's a scandal. <laughs> when this man who's in front of me is declaring that he is God himself, that is scandalous to me. Not to me personally, by God's grace. But you see what I'm saying? As a human being. And even, you know what, even as a Christian, is it not still baffling when you're just trying to like fathom how, wait a minute, how does this work? How is this possible? How can I articulate this? And you know what? You can't. You just can't. And that's the best, the scandal. And so look, again, it's like one of these things where you say, hey, this is where faith comes in. This is where trust comes in and belief comes in. And we say, you know what? It's perfectly acceptable to recognize I cannot articulate how it is that God himself took on flesh to come and deliver us. And that how God the second person of the Trinity is right now at the right hand of the Father in heaven. What is that? What does that even mean? But that's what he is. That's where he is. That's what the scriptures teach, right? So it's like, man, how can you articulate that? I can't. I'm sorry. I can tell you what the scriptures say, and I can tell you what, you know, in our finite understanding, I, you know, maybe we can get close to it, but ultimately you can't. And that is okay. Because this stuff is mysterious. This stuff is supernatural. And we're finite. This stuff is infinite. It's beyond our comprehension. And the more we grow in Christ, the more we come to understand it. And whenever we die, and whenever we're in glory, we'll understand it even greater. Thanks be to God. We'll, we'll know more about that. When, when faith becomes sight, when the perfect is made known, then we'll, we'll be able to comprehend this stuff better. But even then, you know what? Even then we won't have full comprehension. It's amazing. So how, I mean, these guys, these poor, you know, like Peter and John, can you imagine these guys, man? These poor dudes, they're sitting back and they're listening and they're watching and they're seeing all of these things and they're trying to put everything together. But you notice what happens. Whenever Christ is arrested, all of the miracles and the teachings that they had seen was not enough to keep them stuck at the sight of Christ, right? They flee, they scatter. But then what happens? Christ returns and a resurrected body comes to them, goes to them, and now what do they do? They start going out with thunder and with boldness and with authority. Because the Holy Spirit falls on them and their eyes are open and they're unstoppable. And you can't stop these guys anymore. So even at this point, and I'm not saying they're not converted at this point. I believe they are. But I'm saying at this point, they are still trying to figure out what in the world is happening. So when Christ is, and, and, and isn't there that sense of awe for us? There should be that sense of awe for us today as we look at this, just to behold these things and say, man, how is this? What is, what is going on here? Not in, a, not in a skeptical sense. It's the opposite, right? It's a sense of mystery and wonder and awe, believing it with all, our whole heart, even if we can't understand everything. But that's why it's so, that's why it's so profound, because we do believe it. And so he's saying, okay, well, look, I'm not just a human deliverer, but think about this, okay? If you're thinking of another very, very popular, quoted, popularly quoted 
Old Testament reference. One of what is it? The second most popular, Psalm two, where it's talking about the enemies of God. The Lord said of my Lord, sit up my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. Psalm 2 is quoted by Peter and John in Acts chapter 4. It's quoted in Acts chapter 13. It's quoted in Hebrews 1. It's, we just read it today. Logan read it. Hebrews chapter 5, Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 12, Revelation chapter 19, Psalm 2. And you know what Psalm 2 is about? It's about the anointed one putting the enemies of God beneath his feet. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. The enemies that are trying to subdue Christ come against Christ. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. Ask of me, and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance, and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. That's what he's trying to get these men to do who are in his presence. He's trying to, you know, these chief, these chief priests and these scribes and these Pharisees, they continue to go to him. And, and, and the call should be, take warning, O judges of the earth. You're trying to mess with the anointed one of God. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son or kiss the Son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. Christ is here 2,000 years ago. Christ is on the scene saying, come and take refuge in me. Flee to me for salvation. Here is the anointed one. Here is the Messiah. And you know what? I'm more, than a, I'm more than a human deliverer. I am the Messiah, plus some. And so when he's calling them to this, now look, we have enemies in our life, do we not? We have enemies. We, we live in a fallen world. But what does Christ do? Christ, is, Christ has come to deliver us from our enemies, right? So look, we, here, here, are, here are six enemies that we all face every single day. Every single day. We face these enemies, but think about it. In one sense, Christ has already defeated these enemies in one sense. I'm going to go through here. Okay? The fallen world that we live in, the fallen cosmos, it's under a curse. Famine, earthquakes, wild animals, bulldogs. Anyone have a bulldog? These things are brutal, man. I bet Dan Zeissen has a bulldog. <laughs> I bet, no, one of those English... Secondly, demons, the demonic, sin, death, religious enemies, religious persecutors, unbelief, outside and, and internally. So we have, look, a fallen world cosmos. Did Christ come in and restore? Yes, in a sense he did, right? When he came in in Colossians, it says that Christ reconciled all things, whether they're in heaven or on earth. All things have been reconciled by the blood of Jesus Christ. Demons, the demonic, Christ has overthrown them. Christ has cast them out. You see in Revelation that Christ has bound the strong man, but that, that strong man is still going about and wreaking havoc and wreaking, causing problems. Sin, of course, in our life, but sin outside. But you remember what Christ says on the cross. He says, it's finished. Sin is finished. Sin is put away with, done, done away with. If you're in Christ, there is no sin that will ever be held against you, that you'll ever be condemned for there will never be a single sin that you'll ever be condemned for if you're in Jesus Christ. That you'll ever suffer for as far as the wrath of God, the condemnation of God goes. Death. I mean, we face the, the death every single day all around us. We still have death still to come, right? So we're, we face death. But we know that Christ defeated death. The death of death by the death of Christ. Christ defeated death. He already defeated death. But death is still, remember in 1 Corinthians, it says the last enemy to be defeated will be death. In the sense of it will be put away put away for forever. Done away with forever. It'll never come back. There'll, 
you know, all tears, that's where you get the whole idea of there'll never be any tears, there'll never be any crying, sadness, grief, any of that, because death has, has been put away and, and will be put away. Religious enemies, persecutors, people today, I was just doing a, some study on this, and 5,000 churches last year around the world were vandalized or terrorized or something like that because they were Christian churches. 5,000. So how many of that, how many, how many, I mean, 5,000 divided by 365. I mean, that's a lot every single day. There's churches around the world being persecuted, vandalized because they're Christian churches. So we still have enemies. We still have persecutors. There will still be persecutors, you know, tomorrow. And so that's, that's something. But what do we have? We have a crisis on the throne. And then unbelievers. Kiss the sun lest he be angry and you perish in the way. So this is why we can look at this and we can say, okay, when we're looking at what Christ does, we can say this. The only person that can rescue you or rescue me or rescue his people is the Yahweh of the universe, God. When Egypt was saved, Egypt was the Israelites in Egypt, not Egypt was saved, but the Israelites in Egypt. God sent a human deliverer to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. But the only way he could do that was with the staff, with the power of God working through through Moses. Now we're dealing with somebody, Yahweh, who comes and saves us himself by coming in the flesh. And thus, I'll end with this. If you are in Christ, if you're in Christ, right? If you're a Christian, if you are a child of God, if you're a son of God, if you're a daughter of God, you can rejoice. We, are, we should rejoice at his exalted status, what he's talking about here, that he's more than just a descendant of David. We can rejoice at that fact, that he has more than exalted status. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. If you're not in Christ, all right, if you're not a child of God, if you're not a son of God or a daughter of God, or if you're kind of on the fence or something, and Christ says, if you're not for me, you're against me, right? And there's no, strat- there's no neutrality here when it comes to God, the God of the universe. If you're not in Christ, just like a Christian can rejoice at his exalted status, if you're not in Christ, it's a call to tremble at his exalted status. You're standing on enemy territory. You're walking on enemies, your enemy's turf. You're breathing your enemy's air. You're drinking your enemy's water. You're every, you're, the sunlight you're soaking in belongs to your enemy. If you are not in Christ, now is the time to tremble because the enemy that you are up against has, is omniscient. He knows everything. He's omnipotent. He has almighty power. You cannot, you cannot win this fight. Like Jonathan Edwards said, oh, it's like a gnat busting his head against the wall. You can't win against God. What are you waiting for? And that's what this whole idea is. is When he's telling them this, he's saying, listen, guys, I am not just anybody here. I'm not just a human teacher. I'm not just a good teacher. I'm not just a guru. I'm not just a smart guy. I'm the king of the universe. And as the scriptures tell us in Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. But how blessed, how blessed are all who take refuge in him. Why? Because he is the king and he is the God of the universe and he can protect us. He can take care of us. He, can, he has. He has done the work to deliver us from the wrath to come. Let's pray. How God, we do praise you, Lord, that you have given us, given us your word.
Lord, that you have revealed these things to, to, to us. Lord, these things that are beyond our comprehension that we can't fathom, we can't even begin to, to fathom. Certainly not in a, in, a, in a full way. And yet, Lord, we thank you that you, you have given us insight into this. We, we don't need to be, it's not like we're, we're skeptics or we're, uh, we're, we're cut off from this, Lord, that, but, that, but that you have revealed these things to us. You've impressed these truths upon us. You've given us cause to, to behold and to believe that these are, these are glorious things. These are, these are things too deep for utterance, too deep for words. And yet, Lord, here you are and you're articulating them in your word. And you have given us a word which conveys these things to us, to, to finite human beings. And so thank you, O oh God, that you haven't left us without a witness. Lord, impress your Bible upon us that we would believe it, that we would, that we would uh, be awestruck by the truths and how deep they are. Or these things that, that we, we certainly do long to look into as the prophets of old did. Or give us grace to be able to look into these things with, with, with deeper insight, clear eyes. Or thank you that Christ is on his throne today. That he does subdue and conquer. He conquers our enemies. And Lord, we, we do have many. Lord, how often though is our biggest enemy ourselves. And Lord, give us grace, O oh God, to even in sanctification, especially there, Lord, that you would continue to work in us to help us to become more and more like Christ. We thank you. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Right, so for the supper, I don't have a specific passage to turn to, but I do want to point out two things in the supper. 